Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Drowski show. As I speak, it's what is Thursday? Mar- I can't even get the days straight anymore. It's flying so fast. May 5th, 2022. Here's a headline that's very apropos to what we're going to be talking about with my distinguished guest, uh, which is what I've been talking about with all my distinguished guests all week. Probably be talking about this next week. The week after that, the week after that, 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 until we get to November, when we can help settle this issue, as though this issue will ever be settled. Uh, here's a headline. This headline made me laugh. I, sometimes I wonder, is the New York Times trying to be ironic? This is from today's New York Times. Firms might lose option of silence about abortion. <laughs> the option of silence. Wow. You don't have to be silent. I'm just telling you that, firms. Uh, what that headline alludes to is the fact uh, that a, um, uh, the Supreme Court uh, decision to uh, annihilate uh, Roe v. Wade and thus effectively make abortion illegal in, I think, most of the states in this country, uh, if not now, then right down the road, uh, has already been drafted. Uh, it's just a matter of time before the Supreme Court uh, releases that decision and uh, thus will ignite a huge uh, political battle in this country, one that's been a long time coming, in my humble opinion, over the, uh, the right of women to control their bodies, uh, reproductive rights, essential. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm just before I bring on my guests, I say this every time. All you men out there, you think this is just about women? They think, you think they're not coming from you? This is just the start. This is just the start, my friends. So wake up, uh, people. I can't say that enough. I don't know why you're not awake. They always make fun of saying, oh, I'm woke. Yeah, because they want you asleep. Anyway, enough for me. Uh, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest who is chomping at the bits I bit I know. Uh, she's got a lot to say about this stuff. A dear friend of mine, a dear friend of the show, introduce yourself, distinguished guest. Hi there, Vinny. It's... Achi Obejas here in California, the land of the free, uh, <laughs> where the governor is talking about a constitutional amendment to basically codify abortion as a fundamental right. Yeah. 
Wow, it is. It's so wild. Uh, my my uh, kids live uh, in California, so I visit there frequently. My grown-up children. Uh, it's hard to even think of them as children, actually, because they're so grown up. But yes, they're still my children. And uh, it is, it's just a different nation, uh, California, than the rest of America. God bless California. Uh, all right, listen. I reached out to Achi, um, not to, that before the uh, Alito ruling or decision was released, the preliminary uh, ruling was released, because I wanted to talk about uh, the great, late uh, Susan Nussbaum, who is, I would call, one of the great Chicago characters that I was lucky to have met, and whose legacy um, deserves to be honored, commemorated, and definitely remembered. And Achi knew uh, Susan a lot better than I did, we'll get into that, uh, and wrote a really beautiful uh, tribute to her on Facebook, which actually I wish um, you'd shared with the Tribune or the Sun-Times or the reader. You could have sent it to the reader. Uh, and uh, But whatever, it wasn't wasted because it's beautiful. I read it, and I know you have a lot of followers on Facebook who read it as well. By the way, Achi Obez is a poet, a translator, a writer. I should have said that up top. Um, but we, we have to have time to tie a tribute to Susan Nussbaum with uh, a discussion about reproductive rights and what, where this country is heading, if for no other reason, and we both agree on this, that if Susan were here, she would be insisting. She would, she would be like, don't waste your time talking about me. Talk about this. Uh, She'd be be red faced. She'd be all over this thing. She would have already led a demonstration somewhere. So before we get uh, to the issue of reproductive rights, the ruling and uh, the impact it's going to have, uh, talk a little bit to introduce people, uh, particularly my younger listeners, to the great uh, Susan Nussbaum. Well, Susan Nussbaum was this amazing woman who um, really was quite multi-talented and uh, an intensely inspiring and somewhat tragic figure all at the same time. Um, Susan is the daughter of Mike Nesbaum, who most Chicagoans know very well from uh, David Mamet Productions and a lot of theater around town. And when she was very young, Susan was also a very, very promising actor, and there was a lot of buzz around her. She was going to school at what was then the DePaul School of Theater, but it was actually based in the Art Institute uh, on not the Michigan side, but uh, Columbus side. And... um, she was going to class one day, uh, one very cold, icy winter day, when a car pulled into that U-shaped driveway and slid on ice and basically pinned her against the door of the Art Institute and uh, gave her a life-altering spinal injury that put her in a wheelchair. She was uh, technically quadriplegic. She had use of her left hand and uh, she had some movement in her right. Um, She spent like a year and a half in rehab, um, like literally suspended in air while her spine, um, you know, healed. It was long and quite torturous. Uh, Medicine back in the day wasn't where it is now. In fact, if she had that very same injury now, she would not have been... uh, disabled because they have found ways of uh, keeping that from happening with that very same injury. Um, So she was always just a little bit behind on that front. Anyway, 
you know, a lot of people might have really given up at that point to have gone from having so much potential and so much public potential because, I mean, she was, you know, a pretty well-known character in the theater universe by virtue of Mike long before she had really, you know, had leading roles in much of anything. Anyway, she came out of it and just went right back into it. She insisted on having a career. She insisted on having a meaningful career and uh, to play parts that weren't necessarily disabled parts and weren't necessarily viewed that way. And at one point when she realized those parts were very, um, very rare, she began writing and discovered that she was actually a very, very good writer. Um, she had also always been a very political person. Her mom was, a, and her sister, you know, both very politically inclined. Her sister's an organizer. Her mom had worked for a number of different causes. And Susan jumped right in. In fact, one of the causes that was very close to her heart was abortion. And uh, she, she had been demonstrating and uh, she'd been, you know, she'd been on the forefront of all of that stuff even before Roe v. Wade. She was a member of the early Chicago Women's Liberation Front and um, she had been very, very, very engaged in all these feminist issues. As, as you know, as she discovered more and more about her disability, and by that I mean, I mean not just her possibilities, but also how the world was not set up for her, you know, she began to turn her attentions and her focus to disability issues. And she was incredibly powerful. She was very, uh, a stunning speaker. She was very funny and very, you know, self-deprecating. So she could really bring people around who hadn't thought about things in, in, in terms of, you know, being in her shoes. Um, she was a founding member of ADAPT, which is sort of the act up for disability. Um, you know, they, those people were crazy, man. They were throwing themselves on escalators and in front of buses. And I mean, uh, brave, nutty, wacko people, you know. And uh, I remember when they shut down the Thompson Center one time. Uh, I think it was them and a bunch of nuns. Very much like ACT UP. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, she, she was also... I think somebody who was very insistent on independence for, uh, you know, disabled people, like really adamant about the fact that disabled people should be able to lead independent lives, to not be dependent on family, to, if they needed, you know, an assistant, as was the case with her, um, that, you know, it not be family, that it be somebody who really was there just to do this job. Um, she was, you know, fanatical about disabled people being able to work, being able to be artists, being able to be whatever they wanted to be, and also being, you know, sexual creatures. It was actually a really important part of her life to, you know, make it clear that because you were disabled, you weren't necessarily asexual. And um, she, she worked for a long time over at Access Living, and one of the things she did was put together a group for young disabled women who could talk about their bodies in sexual ways and who could explore and understand, uh, you know, that they were not going to miss out on, you know, intimacy and love and those kinds of relationships, um, that they could uh, still have a very full 
uh, life. She made a series of films that were also really important. She produced films from a lot of these girls. She worked with Salome Shasnoff on a fantastic documentary. I don't know if you've seen it, Benny. Um, Code of the Freaks. It's all about how Hollywood sort of uh, really, uh, you know, stereotypes and uh, limits uh, disability. You know, like historically, what we see of disability in Hollywood films. Uh, I just rewatched it the other day, and I, I you know, it's a, it's actually a remarkable uh, little documentary. It can really open people's eyes if they give it a shot. Anyway, her passing is, I mean, she was young, really. I mean, she was 68, which in this universe is not a particularly old uh, age. And, you know, her dad is still walking around. He's 90-something. So, you know, genetically, she was all set up for a much longer life. And I think uh, this is a real surprise. She wasn't sick. She just, she had complications after spinal surgery. And uh, I think... It, a lot of people were just completely taken aback by her death. I mean, I had, I mean, I, I got a bunch of messages that day from people saying, don't look at social media, call me. Don't look at social media, call me. <laughs> and uh, and I finally, you know, reached a friend, Reva Lehrer, and uh, Reva told me what had happened. And it, it was such a stunner. It was such a, uh, uh, I mean, we never really expect our friends to go, but it was... Uh, it was really, she was like not on my list of, of possibilities. She just wasn't. Uh, also, you know, she had such a force that uh, you kind of thought she might live forever. Susan just seemed to overcome everything and anything. Uh, she was amazing. Amazing. You, uh, by the way, uh, don't look at social media. Call me is a mantra that applies to a lot more than this. Just don't look at, so <laughs> call me. <laughs> just call me. Uh, that could be a T-shirt in itself. But um, you, you went on quite a riff there, and I was taking notes. And uh, one of the things that I'd like to come back to uh, is her work um, with Adapt back in the 80s. And that's how I uh, met her, because I was a, a very young uh, reader writer uh, writing about uh, Adapt and um, also writing about ACT UP. At the time, there was a uh, activist, Danny Sotomayor, uh, in Chicago, who's a real badass, and uh, Susan Nussbaum and her allies were badasses, and they would, like, you know, they were pushing the envelope, and it was like, if you, Larry Kramer, may you rest in peace, you can't just expect people to do the right thing, because they're not going to do the right thing. You got to force them to do the right thing, and you got, you have to be unafraid to be obnoxious. You have to be unafraid not to make a spectacle of yourself and be humiliated with arrests and having people in the loop look at you and go, oh my God, you know what I mean? And, um, and they were fighting for lifts on buses. This is 1980s millennials. It's like, yeah, is, you know, yeah, the city was resisting that. This is, they were fighting for curb cuts, for God's sakes, which we take. Yes, curb cuts. <laughs> and, oh, my God. And I would always have these bureaucrats explain to me, well, Ben, you don't understand. You see, the cost of the curb cut will be exorbitant. And who wants to pay for that? Uh, and um, I don't know. You, you knew her uh, well. Was there a moment when she like had a just like get the uh, energy up to to do that? Was it like you look in the mirror and go, "I got to do this, I got to do this, I cannot be afraid," uh, or was it something that just came to her? I think it was something that just came to her. You know, one of the things that was 
I mean, I dated Susan for a couple of years, a little more than a couple of years. And one of the things that was always amazing to me was that Susan was ready to go at any moment when it came time to, you know, activism. Um, there would be so many times when people would just sort of spontaneously gather at her apartment. I'd be the only person standing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, they would just, you know, trump out and do their thing. Um, it was a real learning experience for me, um, which, you know, unfortunately sort of falls into that stereotype that, you know, a lot of us learn through, you know, having contact with disability, with disabled people. But it's true that, I mean, there was just a lot of stuff that I hadn't considered when I, uh, you know, became close with her. Um, you know, I didn't realize, for example, that there's a real hierarchy of disability within the disability community, you know? Like a, a lot of Susan's pals who were in wheelchairs or, you know, had physical mobility issues, you know, they, they looked at deaf people as barely disabled, you know? It was like, oh, come on, they drive, you know? They, you know, they, uh, and uh, and it, was, it was just so um, interesting and rich to understand that all these experiences were actually very, very different um, and that the spectrum of disability really demands uh, a really open mind and a really open heart in terms of accommodating people. Not everybody needs the same accommodation. I mean, a curb cut doesn't do much for somebody who's blind. Uh, you know, a braille in the elevator doesn't do squat for, you know, somebody who's deaf. Um, so you have to really think very, very broadly. And, and disability also means a lot of things that we don't think about. There are a lot of invisible disabilities. There are, you know, people with really severe, you know, arthritis who have mobility issues who are disabled, but you look at them and you go, oh, that person stole the, you know, disabled spot. Damn them. You know, they look perfectly fine to me. Um, you know, and a lot of uh, mental illness also falls within, you know, disability. And it, it's just a, such a broad thing. And to ask for rights for all these people who all deserve them and deserve accommodation um, is, uh, it requires, uh, I think, a a tremendous amount of patience and a tremendous amount of openness about, and, and, and also willingness to sort of think outside the box. You have to constantly be thinking outside the box to try to figure this stuff out. I think one of the great things about Susan was that she was always thinking about outside the box. Susan was a, a real, you know, um, original sort of, you know, thinker. She was very inventive. She was, she was agile in her uh, intellectual and emotional approach to these issues. It was something to see, really, especially because, you know, and I mentioned this in the Facebook post, she was not an easy person. She had a temper like few people I know. Um, she, I mean, she could be utterly volcanic. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and she... I mean, she had every right to be in a lot of ways. You know, her life turned out, I think, quite differently than what she had imagined it would be when she was in her teens and her early 20s. And, uh, but it, it, I, in, in some ways, I think it may have actually turned out richer. But certainly in terms of her artistic ambitions, I think it was always, you know, this thing that hung over her head. Um, so she had a lot of anger. She had a lot of anger around injustice in general, 
And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, the family she comes from, the way they were raised to look at injustice. Um, but also, you know, uh, around the fact that it, she was moving faster in her, uh, you know, in her personal growth and her ambitions and her artistic growth than accommodations for disabled people were, you know, keeping up with, you know, like she was way ahead of the, of the curb in terms of the things that she needed. It was like, will I live long enough for there to be, you know, a disabled theater? Will I live long enough to see, you know, that first show that really focuses on disabled people on, you know, television? I mean, I think she did, but I think those are real questions for her. And, you know, what would be her level of participation in those things? Um, and I think she was, she was angry about being disabled as much as she was, I think, oftentimes feeling blessed by having this... Uh, you know, situation and being able to contribute to the world in the way that she did. Uh, yeah. And she was also, I, I must mention this because you talk about this as well in your Facebook tribute, uh, which again, I urge you to submit to the reader. Uh, and um, uh, she was beautiful. She was gorgeous. And you talk about this a lot, but she was strikingly a beautiful woman. Uh, and, um, it just, uh, in that regards, it must just that amplifies the pain of having your acting career, a traditional acting right, career. Whether, yeah, I mean, whether you agree with it as being, you know, the right thing or not, it's true that a certain physical beauty gets you further in the, the universe of, you know, theater and performance and television, certainly in the films. So, yeah, I mean, I think if, it, certainly if Susan had not been disabled, there would have been a great many more parts for her in her lifetime and her career would have probably been very different. What's amazing is that Susan found a way to carve out parts and to create stories so that she could still be you know, an artist, a stage artist, a performing artist, but also in that process contribute to this greater culture, you know, this greater disability culture and to create opportunities for other people. I mean, that's what's so amazing. You know, she wasn't just beautiful. I also got to say, she was just also just really flirty. She was raunchy and flirty. And I mean, I remember when I first met her, she just, uh, I was so stunned that she was such a flirt because I mean, I was completely discombobulated by her when I first met her. She was just so, you know, winking and, you know, <laughs> doing all the little smile things and touching my arm. And I'm like, oh, my God. OK, not prepared for this. I mean, I kind of had a little crush on her from stage already. You know, I'd seen her in a bunch of stuff and just thought, oh, my God, she's so I mean, I think a lot of people had crushes on Susan, to be perfectly honest. Um, but um yeah, she was so flirty. It was fun. Uh, and you mentioned a volcanic temper. Uh, so I didn't know her nearly as well as you did. And uh, I actually hadn't seen her in years. Uh, I was, there was a time in the 80s when I was spending a lot of time uh, covering this. So I uh, spent a lot of time with Susan. But, uh, man, she... She was one of the people you interview. We're always telling you're asking the wrong questions. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there. I'm going to leave them out. 
that that question's not the uh, germane question. That's not the pertinent. Wait, wait, who's doing the interview? <laughs> Damn. Uh, do you, do you, are you listening to yourself, Ben? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there's quite a few people like that I've met over the years. Kind of boss you around a little bit when it comes to asking the correct. Well, why don't you just interview yourself? I'll just sit here and take notes. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, you get personal in the Facebook uh, tribute, so I'm not sure how much you want to uh, share right now. Uh, but uh, talk a little bit about being in a relationship with Susan uh, and dealing with that force uh, who's not afraid to assert her, her opinion. Let's just put it that way. Well, I mean, there was that. I mean, surely, I mean, we were both very sort of strong. You know us both. Come on. We're both kind of stubborn people <laughs> and pretty forceful. So, I mean, we were, you know, uh, pretty, uh, you know, volatile in a lot of ways. But here's the thing when, uh, you know, she's also incredibly vulnerable. I mean, I wrote a little bit about that, about how I never understood vulnerability really until I was a student. And, and I don't want to get into too much detail because I want to respect some of the privacy around that. But, you know, I think it's a very different story for her. It was a very different story for her to you know, uh, uh, lay there naked, both literally and metaphorically than it was for me, you know? Um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, she was disabled. I was not. And I was in a position of, of, uh, you know, a lot more privilege and power in that relationship in that way. So it required a very different sort of approach to thinking about, how to create a space an in, of, of intimacy that was equal and that was safe and that was still beautiful and powerful, but really safe for, for both of us. You know, it was, uh, it was important. And, you know, Susan was one of those people who needed help. Um, and she was quite adamant that I not be the person who helped her. She wanted to keep those things very separate. Um, but it still meant that, you know, we were bound to, you know, certain scheduling that had little to do with us. You know, when I was with Susan, her assistant was somebody who lived on the South side and, you know, we couldn't go to bed until she showed up. So if there was a, you know, blizzard and she got caught on Lakeshore Drive on the way up to Susan's. I mean, we, you know, we were up until she got there. Um, and if, you know, we were still partying, but the agreement had been that she would be there at 10, you know, that was the end of the night, regardless of, um, you know, whatever else was going on. Um, so it was a relationship very different from what... Uh, I'd had before. I mean, and, and it, sometimes even just simple things like um, hanging out with friends. You know, I don't know if you remember, Benny, there used to be a, a coffee house called Strong Coffee on Clark Street near Belmont. If, if you remember, it was first floor right on Clark, right? It was owned by a, a friend of mine. And I remember telling Susan, why don't we 
got a strong coffee. I have some coffee meet up with my pals who own it, etc. And uh, she was like, is it accessible? Because she was also really adamant about not, like, um, she didn't want to be carried in anywhere. She thought that was both unsafe and, which it was, and also gave the wrong impression. You know, like totally got people off the hook with having to do the basic shit. And I remember saying, it's first floor. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's totally, don't worry about it. It's it's completely accessible. I'd been to Strong Coffee a thousand times. I had noticed actually that there was a steel frame around the door that actually made it so you had to do like a little half step uh, into the coffee house. And I remember when we got there thinking, I mean, if she had been in a, in a regular wheelchair, it would have been no deal at all. But she was in an electric wheelchair. And this was, you know, back in the 80s. So this was a, a wheelchair that what it isn't like the, the wheelchairs today that will give you that little hop. You know, this was just a straight up wheelchair. And that little two inch bar was really problematic. I mean, she made the choice of letting us tilt the wheelchair, which she was not happy about that, but she did it. But it was a real lesson for me, too, about how it wasn't quite, I, I wasn't quite as observant as I thought I had been. And my, my level of sensitivity needed to get better, you know. I remember during the time I was with her, I, I reviewed a show at Club Lower Links. If you remember Club Lower Links, you had to go downstairs to a basement space. And this particular show involved people in wheelchairs. And it... Everybody was just carrying them down. And Susan was just appalled that both this is what happened and that these people, like, allowed it. You know, um, she thought it was so... And, and it was. It was incredibly risky. If one person had been a little too drunk or had slipped on those stairs, uh, the results of that could have been dramatic for everyone, but particularly for those who were disabled. Um, you know, it was... And, and this was something that was always at play. I mean, she, when she did the big goddess powwow at the Metro, the Metro wasn't really set up backstage to deal with disabled, you know, performers. It, it was fine up front if you were attending, but there was, it was really, it was, it was, it was impossible actually to get on stage from uh, the, the dressing rooms. And I remember Joe Shanahan, like scratching his head and saying, we'll make it work. We'll carry it. And we were like, no. <laughs> and then he made it work. He, he put in all the, the right, you know, wooden ramps so that uh, it could work. But it, every single thing, if you weren't familiar with the space, required a completely different sort of surveillance of it beforehand, you know? Um, and, and it, I mean, she could never come to my apartment, for example, because I lived uh, up a, a, a floor. Um, she, um, I mean, I've, I moved to a building that had an elevator, you know, thinking that if we went on, that was going to be easier. But, uh, you know, it, it required that kind of thinking, too, for me. Like, what, are, what accommodations can I make? What accommodations can I afford to make? Because that's the other thing, you know? Not everybody... Uh, can necessarily live in an, um, you know, in an elevator building. So, yeah. All right, let's uh, transition a bit to the issue of abortion rights and reproductive rights. Uh, and um, I, I already addressed the, the setup. 
uh, in the opening that uh, there was a leak, which, by the way, that's a whole secondary uh, issue, which is completely irrelevant to the issue at stake, which is uh, the rights of women to control their bodies. But I find fascinating, nonetheless, the way the right uh, is pretending they're outraged over the leak. We'll get into that later. Um, so, Achi, help me out with this one. Why is it that so many people in America are just so adamantly opposed to women being able to get an abortion? Why is it? Um, I think for a lot of people, it's very much a religious event. Um, you know, they really, really believe in fetal life. Um, and it is something that, uh, it's fundamental for them. I mean, I think that there's, there are significant numbers of people with a sincere religious belief that, um, this is, you know, not merely criminal, but, you know, sinful, but I also think that there's a whole lot of other people who don't necessarily think that. I think that there are a lot of people who are less opposed to an abortion than to women making the decision to get an abortion. Like, um, you know, I, I was just reading the other day that in his early years as a senator, uh, Joe Biden talked about how it wasn't just up to women to make the decision, that it couldn't just be up to women to make the decision. And I think that's actually generationally true for a lot of people. And I think it's also something that a lot of people sort of hold on to. So there's an issue of control um, and uh, around here that's, that, you know, that's very much a part of this, uh, of this dynamic. And also, you know, this to me is for the Republicans, um, I think a, very much akin to the issue of gay rights. It is a shit stirrer. It's, you know, it's a great way to organize. Like, I really do not for a minute believe that George Bush gave three royal wits about, uh, you know, gay people and gay marriage or anything like that. He, I think, is probably much more comfortable around gay people than he would ever acknowledge to his evangelical and Christian followers. But I think that, you know, it stirs the pot. It makes people get angry. It, it's a way to help organize. And I think it's a way to help organize not just religious people, but people who are marginalized and afraid that they're getting screwed over. I think that it's a way to marginal to, to organize people who are poorly educated, people who don't have access to um, news and information, you know, it, it's a, it's a great way to instill panic in certain, you know, uh, populations. Um, and it's always tied to something else. I don't know if you've noticed, but I mean, abortion is always tied to something else. It's never just, we don't want you to kill babies, which is the, the headline, right? Like once you get beyond that, it's also, um, you know, um, about the traditional family and, 
you know, the, 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 the role, the broader social role of women and, um, you know, the, the, the broader social control issue of what is a family, you know, um, and so it, it, I think it's a, it's been a real pot of gold for the Republicans in terms of, uh, stirring things up, creating panic, um, you know, making vulnerable people feel even more vulnerable. I mean, I think it's really manipulative the way that abortion has been used. Um, ditto, you know, gay rights, which, I mean, these things go hand in hand in a lot of ways. Um, although I think that the way Alito wrote his draft, which I'm sure you've looked at it by now, um, even though he has a little clause in there saying this is only about abortion, everything leading up to that clause is all about all the things we're going to go after after we go through this. You know, it's a, I think that little clause is just a way to, 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 you know, it's, it's completely disingenuous. I think it's a completely disingenuous clause. Um, but I mean, they'll go after other stuff, you know, uh, he's a, a radical Catholic and he will go after, he will go after contraception. He will go, you know, they will go after other things. Um, and definitely, I think they'll, they'll go to, to same-sex marriage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and eventually, uh, yeah. They'll, 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 they'll go to Griswold. They'll go to what you can do in the privacy of your own home, regardless absolutely. of your orientation. Well, yeah. Um, it's it's a, it's a form of insanity, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, and you said something, and I wrote it down. It was a great riff. I wrote a lot of it down. But you said sincere religious beliefs. And I wonder if the word sincere ever applies <laughs> to, to some of the stupid stuff that's coming out of MAGA's mouth these days. And I say this, Achi, because they completely contradict themselves at any turn based on the issue. So they proclaim, they use the rhetoric of the pro-choice movement to justify why they don't want to get uh, forced to have a vaccine. So where's the sincerity there? They'll, they'll say that we're here, every life is sacred. But then when it comes to a million people died of COVID, well, you know, that was God's will. God wanted that to happen. I mean, they'll say absolutely anything. So I really struggle with the notion. And I want to be as fair as I can, Achi, well, you know, to other people look, that I disagree look, with. If you look at the, at the Alito, uh, you know, write-up, I mean, he makes a big point about how abortion is absolutely different from absolutely everything else because it's fetal life. You can, you know, this is the one thing that distinguishes this issue, that there is possibility of life and you're killing it. You know, you're, you're undoing it. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with anything here. Okay. I think there is so much disingenuousness in that opinion. And I think it's, uh, you know, uh, and, and I think it's manipulative as hell. Um, and I, I also think, um, I also think that the leak and the way this thing, whole thing has 
played out is indicative of a greater problem. I mean, I don't think the leak undoes, you know, the Supreme Court in the way that everybody's like screaming and wailing about, you know, it's like the leak is actually a greater sin now than anything else. And I don't think it was a liberal clerk who gave out the leak. I think it was a conservative clerk and I think it was designed to do exactly what it's doing, which is preparing us for the eventual decision in June and July. I think that the leak was designed to, uh, you know, they will tone that opinion down by June um, so that when it comes out, it won't be as bad, whatever that means. But I think it was, it, the, the leak was an absolute um, deliberate strategy on the part either of Alito or the, the you know, the, the conservative bloc that did it. But I also think the fact of the leak and the fact that um, the opinion is already signed on to by five judges that does not include the chief justice is a sign that this Supreme Court is completely out of control, that Roberts cannot, no, I'm serious, that Roberts has lost control of the court. I mean, Roberts has been letting them, uh, you know, sort of chip away at the margins of abortion. And, but, you know, he's a great institutionalist. He's always been very much about, you know, respecting certain traditions of the court, and that includes precedent. Um, and he's actually found himself, I think, in the weird position of siding with the liberals, especially this last year or so, uh, in order to find balance that he's not getting from anybody else. But I do think that the fact that, that they can do this and the fact that Roberts no longer holds sway means that they will do whatever the fuck they want from this point on. Oh, yeah. I, I, well put. You should be covering the Supreme Court. That's that was a good analysis. And uh, uh, listen, there. This is me speaking. Uh, I believe the notion that these judges are blind justices. You know, the traditional lady justice who's blind and holding the scales in her hand. That's a myth, people. <laughs> these are human beings. They had a whole life before they sat on a bench. And a whole okay, life they got political beliefs. Look at Clarence Thomas, come on. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. First of all, I personally, for what it's worth, I'm going to put this out there. I believe the leak came from Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is married to Ginny Thomas. Ginny Thomas is one of the leading political activists on the far right. She was calling on the Trump administration to overturn the election, confident in her knowledge that her husband would vote the right way if the matter had to be adjudicated by the Supreme Court. Achio Bejas, you know these are political people. That's the, a political couple. It's not a political couple I want to hang out with or you want to hang know. out with, I'll but they're very political. <laughs> so I personally, like, I'm looking at this. This, I mean, to me, it locks in the judges. So any judge breaks from of the five breaks now, they're going to look like a wimp. So I, I personally believe it was just an attempt by the right to lock it. I don't yeah, know that. No, no. By yeah, the way, I, I don't really care. I agree with you. If, okay. there, if a single judge steps out at this point, and the most likely character would probably be Kavanaugh, you know, uh, he'll be eaten alive. He'll be, you know, son of Souter. Um, <laughs> even if he's not at all. Oh, that's hilarious. Son of Souter. I got to write that down. Um, <laughs> so, son of Souter. So, yeah, no, I think he's I, I think nobody can step out now. I think that uh, and 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 in and in fact, it may push Roberts to, to have to step in just to sort of pretend to have some sort of, 
control over it. But I, I think the fact that Robert's name is not attached to it already is really significant. I don't, I think it, that is significant at a larger level in terms of other things that could happen. Um, yeah. Or maybe they're trying to force him to, to join yeah, him. Who knows are. what their motives well, are. They don't need him. Uh, but, uh, you know, but, and when I, John, to me, John Roberts, is a political animal, he's basically what's left of a moderate Republican and he does not well, want his party to go. Day, he wasn't considered a moderate Republican. He's only moderate now know. by comparison to the other people yes, on the some... bench. You know, exactly. he, when he was, he, when he was yes. nominated, he was absolutely a conservative and no one, no one thought of him as anything but. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So I asked why, what motivates anti-abortionists, uh, and this is the obvious question, but I'd just love to hear you riff on this. W- why does that ruling so outrage and upset you? Well, for me, it, it's a sign that there's a very strong chance that the Republicans are going to be able to codify and to impose minority rule and some very um, intimate spaces in uh, our lives. You know, um, it, it, these are people, I, mean, I always think of people who worry a whole lot about other people's intimate lives as people who must be very unhappy in theirs. Because why the hell would you care? Really, honestly, why do you care? Um, you know, even if you if you buy the sincere, you know, religious belief and the fetal life argument, th- where this will lead has nothing to do with any of that. And you know, pretty soon they're going to be saying, uh, "Ben, you and Pam cannot have anal sex." Um, and I'm not saying you do or don't. I'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> that. I mean, that's what Griswold basically, you know, yeah. you know, dealt with. You know, it basically dealt with the kinds of sex that you can have in your own backyard. Because for a long time, as you well know, there were laws against sodomy. Like, who cares, really? You know? Um, and so, um, and and Griswold's, you know, it undid a law in Texas that outlawed sodomy for everybody, not just queer people, but heterosexuals as well. Not that any heterosexuals ever got prosecuted under the sodomy law, but technically it covered everybody. It wasn't specific. Um, the thing is that now I think we're a little wiser to these things. And if such a creature were to come up, I think it would probably, uh, you know, throw up a broader net. I mean, I think people would see themselves implicated in ways that maybe they hadn't seen before. Um, I don't know. I, I think this is a real sign of how bad things can possibly get, you know? I mean, since Trump, there has been a real arrogant, uh, cold-hearted, take-no-prisoners kind of approach on the part of the right that doesn't care about facts, doesn't care about people, um, and seems to be full of spite. There's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of spite in how um, a lot of the stuff is being approached. You know, there was a, an anchor on Newsmax yesterday who blamed the leak on uh, the new justice, on Justice Brown. And I was like, dude, <laughs> you know, uh, 
I mean, based on nothing, based on nothing. And it wasn't, it wasn't speculation in the usual sense that, you know, you, somebody might say, well, I think possibly, maybe, perhaps, quizás, 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 this. I mean, the guy was asserting it, like, in a way that was uh, truly fantastic. If you didn't know better, you'd think he had some sort of, you know, audio or something on Justice Brown to be able to, to make that sort of assertion. But, you know... I, it, you know, truth is a is a real uh, is is a real victim is a real, you know, uh, has been run over here so many times that I um, I just think it it's it, if this is the beginning of truly terrible things because they are winning by lying they are winning by being spiteful they are winning by cheating, they are winning by creating things, uh, you know, threats and calamities out of thin air. So long as they continue to win, they have no reason to stop. So they will just keep going. And I do think that there is a, a proselytizing, you know, unreasonable thrust behind all this. I think it's, it's basically evangelical uh, in, in its nature, but I also think it's more than that. You know, I think it's, 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 it's hateful, it's spiteful. You know, you can't look at some of the ways these people have been handling issues and not think that there's very little Christian love involved in their approach. I mean, why were kids getting separated at the border? You know, why... You know, why do you care about interracial marriage? Just don't marry somebody outside of your race if this is a problem for you. You know, why do you care what kind of sex Ben and Pam have? You know, I mean, it doesn't matter. But it, but it, for these people, it's it's all part of the same thing. Yeah. They have the right to tell you what to do. Yeah, that's a great riff. Uh, but I know it's like how uh, she brings in my uh, sexual relations with my wife every now and then. <laughs> Just to sh just to let me know they're coming after me too. Uh, <laughs> uh, heterosexual males out there. Uh, but you're absolutely correct. And uh, spite is a key word. They um, and the hatred uh, just of the other side, it motivates them. Uh, we'll talk at another time at greater length about the politics, how this plays out. It's fascinating how it's going to play out in the state of yeah. Illinois, uh, your state, because if the Republicans are to have a clean sweep, which they really thought they were going to make inroads uh, in a way they hadn't made in a while by just riding crime and white fear of black people, uh, this, 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 is, <laughs> this is a stumbling block because ab abortion rights will be the... Because, see... Achi, they may have thought they were getting it out there early, you know, it gets over with, but then there's the releasing, the official releasing of the ruling. Then there's a second cycle. And then, Maggie can't help itself, all the laws that will be uh, introduced in all the red states, the MAGA states throughout the country, to, that should really uh, end abortion rights completely. And really weird, twisted stuff, too, where they go after people. They're going to do this because that's how their brain works, Achi. They're going to, like, if Achi in Houston helps uh, right. Janie I mean, in Illinois get an abortion. In Texas. 
that law yeah. is already on the books. And there are a bunch of trigger laws that are waiting for the decision to be official in June or July. And uh, some of those laws, and I can't, don't remember exactly how many of them, but some of those laws have that provision as well. They have almost the exact same provisions as the Texas law, which makes it so that if you help, you know, yeah, if you help Janie get across the Kansas border to, you know, it, it, to get eventually to, you know, Florida or New York or California, wherever abortion might still be legal, then uh, you are also breaking the law. I mean, it, it's madness. The, 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 also, the crucial provision in the Texas law is that it's not actually government, but other citizens who make the arrest, uh, who make the complaint, so so that it, it relieves government from a bunch of, um, you know, responsibility and also a bunch of liability. All right, Achi, we have run out of time. We could talk about this forever. I'll just bring you back next month and we'll continue the conversation because this issue is not going anywhere. That's for certain. Uh, and one last shout out on this show to the great Susan Nussbaum. And, uh, I was lucky to know her and I know you feel the same way. Uh, no matter how many times she chided me, I was asking the wrong question or <laughs> whatever I was doing wrong at the time. God bless the great Susan Nussbaum and, uh, God bless Achi Obejas too. Thank you so much, Achi, for coming on the show. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. All right. That's Achi Obejas. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Bye.